Well, I was just going to say that every time Josiah launches Craig and he goes, Mail recording, I jump a little. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah I use a Discord I use a Discord bot called Craig for anyone unfamiliar and it uh you 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 know it does a very loud now recording when we we press the record button. <laughs> I so I've always said I've always said that the best way to that the that the key to improv is to ask everyone um what you're gonna do what you're gonna do for improv when you start. <clears throat> yeah, that's my favorite yes. way of so yeah. uh, uh, and I ask. Um, so what's the cold open, guys? Yeah, what's the cold open? And uh, we can talk about. Uh, okay, uh, I was gonna uh, say we uh, can talk about the fact that Craig sounds like a dime store Darth Vader. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's, uh, that's the end of that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we have much more we can extract from that. No. I, <laughs> oh Craig, man, I am your father. Oh man. <laughs> oh. Uh, but, uh, 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 okay. So I, I, I guess, uh, uh, there's not too much to say other than, um, this is what everyone's been waiting for. Uh, the return of the book club Yep, and an opportunity to hear, uh, to hear three white guys talk about, uh, the colonial, uh, uh, exploitation of Africa. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Uh, via a book written by a black man. (laughs) Yep. Here we go. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what the right answer for that is because I think it's good we're reading this and discussing it. But oh, there's yeah, probably 100%. some truth to yeah. Uh, if you but don't want to listen to three white guys tackle this subject, I understand. Uh, and there is like, like I was saying to y'all earlier, there is a a very very long YouTube video by uh, African scholars presenting at Vanderbilt. Uh, if you want to uh, Ooh, listen to that yeah. instead. Um, yeah, just, I can include it in the show. Links I will put end. that in the yeah, show notes. A little, bit more, to me. Uh, a little bit more qualified than three podcasters. Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, but if you're still here, I, we're just we're just uh, I'm just hemorrhaging members. Yeah, uh, <laughs> hemorrhaging <laughs> listeners. The, be- the best to way to do a podcast is you started off by telling people reasons you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Here's a better podcast. Yeah, this is really helping out. Thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> This, it, I, it's just this might be the height of Icarian hubris right here. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the takeaway from these book clubs is, of course, that other people should also read these books, and yes, that's I'm, ultimately yes. what we're saying. Um, you should read this book; it is good. I mean, fuck it. I feel like we're getting we're we're already, we've we've done a cold open. Fuck it. Let's. I should read our quote. Should we get moving here? Yes. Yeah, let's this? go. All right. LFG. Reading. Uh, from uh from the beginning i don't remember from 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 how europe underdeveloped africa by walter rodney here we go in recent times it has become an object of concern to some liberals that the united states is capable of war crimes of the order of my Lai in vietnam but the fact of the matter is that the my Lai's began with the enslavement of africans and american indians Racism, violence, and brutality were the concomitants of the capitalist system when it extended itself abroad in the early centuries of international trade. Welcome to the third installment of The Fruitless Book Club. You are listening to The Fruitless Book Club, a podcast within a podcast where we read all those nonfiction books we've been meaning to get around to. This is episode three, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa 
where we discuss Walter Rodney's seminal work on colonialism and the exploitation of Africa. Say welcome everybody to another excited of another exciting installment of my, my I think my favorite fruitless uh, series this this podcast within a podcast I've been doing I've been really enjoying the these these book club episodes so I'm joined today by my I, I'm Josiah of course and I'm joined today by Chris Parker hello and Jake the lawyer I'm honored to be included in your favorite uh, podcast spinoff series. <laughs> <laughs> it's a <laughs> podcast within a podcast. <laughs> a little, oh, a little podcast matryoshka. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we decided that we really enjoyed how much uh, colonialism bummed the fuck out of us uh, last time. <laughs> so we, we continued with that theme and we're, we're tackling how Europe underdeveloped Africa um, which is also, I mean, this is the third book club thus far, but I will say the most Marxist book we've read thus far, like incredibly Marxist. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like Davis was a Marxist, you know, in late Victorian Holocaust, but it was more like it was his methodology in the background. This is a, this is a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Proud. And, and not just any Marxist, but, but I think it's notable to, to and we'll get to this, uh, He's very much a Leninist. He's yes. very much a a vanguard, a bourgeois vanguard supporter, uh, mm-hmm. which makes sense because he was part of that class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa is by uh, Walter Rodney, who was a uh, like you said, a Marxist historian and activist from Guyana. He was first in his class in his high school. He ended up going to university in Jamaica and uh, eventually went to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, which at the time was a leading uh, place to study Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Um, yeah, three he, regions he, that totally should just be lumped together and treated as one yeah, yeah. blob, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just a yeah, uh, nailing it over there. That. I love love the West. <laughs> so good at uh, at teaching history. Um, yeah, yeah. We've uh, got our, our department come... of French history over here, and then <laughs> department of all the other parts of the world. Right. <laughs> Very good at taking other people's lives seriously. Um, so uh, he uh, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to go this hard, but he did flex on us by completing his PhD at twenty four. Jesus Christ. Uh, in African yeah, history. Uh, uh, and he eventually moved back to Guyana to be a professor, but but his appointment was rescinded, uh, probably on account of his the communism. Uh, associations with working class uh, uh, groups, uh, po- political organizations, and basically spent his life it, it working uh, in activist circles and uh, finally was assassinated by uh, uh, by bomb in Carbon, Georgetown yeah. in, in Guyana on June 13th, 1980. Uh, and recently, uh, so relatively recently, the Guyanese government came out and said, yeah, we did it. 
Yeah, which which is interesting because, you know, as we noted, a lot of stuff like just like even Wikipedia or whatever has not caught up with that information. Like like it is still treated as a conspiracy theory if you say that yeah. he was assassinated by the Guyanese government, but but he like was. Like they like they admitted to Yeah, they were like, That's our <laughs> Yeah, we did that. Sorry. Yeah. It's like I think the the basically verbatim what they said. <laughs> yeah. Um so that's Walter Rodney. I mean when we say he was a Marxist, he was a, a dyed-in-the-wool, like, mm-hmm. this is how the dialectic works. This is how history works. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it influenced every part of his understanding and, and, and is the underlying theme of this book. Um, and uh, uh, I think he does a really good job of uh, keeping to that. Uh, he... he, he uh, describes the development uh you know I, I tend to take issue with uh the rigid the rigidity of marx's develop, developmental stages while understanding mm-hmm. that that marx allows for some flex between uh, yeah. uh between stages uh it's still a little bit difficult to really throughout history trace a line uh and i know he was talking about europe but uh, i appreciate how rodney distinguishes the developmental track of africa from the developmental track of of europe even if i still take issue with the uh, the overarching developmental stages that that we talk about um, yeah and uh it, it i just think that uh like like we said definitely read this book this is one of the most clearly set out arguments for the existence and continuation of a colonial exploitative project in Africa. Yeah. Cause I would say like this book, I, I, I think that it, it is so consistent with its Leninist framework that I think it ends it, even if you do not adhere to a strict Marxist Leninist, which I don't think any of us do. I don't no. think any of us are committed Leninists. Um, it's still an incredibly helpful lens and is just like, you know, e- even with some of the limitations that we'll kind of point, you know, point out about Lenin, you know, kind of this this Marxist Leninist perspective. At the end of the day, I mean, this this thing nails it on the head of what. Yeah, the argument is quite convincing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, stages aside, I, I, I'm I'm really being nitpicky. There's nothing false about his yeah. about his overarching thesis, which is that Europe exploited Africa and kept it from of reaching relative levels of, yeah. of prosperity purposely yeah, and systematically. Cause I think like, you know, and I don't even think Rodney would be this strict to like a Marxist Leninist framework, but you know, I think it is still useful to go. Africa was in the middle of, of moving out of communalism to feudalism when Europeans arrived. And because of that, it disrupted the process that was taking place you can, I think, accept that that is a a very good argument in explaining what took place without necessarily buying that whatever they were developing would have looked exactly like European feudalism because the laws of history develop in the same way. Who knows what Africa would have developed if it hadn't yeah, been disrupted? Yeah. And so, like, and that's exactly the point that Africa or, didn't get yeah. to develop. We don't know what a Africa that had been able to develop on its own without people coming in and fucking it up looks like. Cause that didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. And there's actually, uh, um, 
And of course, I'm blanking on the scholar. There's actually a little bit of scholarship on for the idea that Africa was moving a little bit more slowly in its development process, precisely because it was um, trying to. Uh, it, it several societies. I don't want to say Africa like a monolith because obviously no, no. it's not. But there were civilizations in Africa that were developing and were developing similar technologies and and societal structures to Europe, but it was moving a little bit more slowly because they were being deliberate about um, Mm -hmm. advancing society in a way that would not betray certain egalitarian ideals. Yeah, and this is this is where like you know you could you could kind of you know bring in David Graeber with Dawn of Everything kind of yeah. here too is is kind of pointing out that like we should assume that the act of developing structures was oftentimes a conscious thing and and you know and people were mm-hmm. going I don't know whether we want this or if we are going to start building up a structure like this how do we do this in a way that it doesn't kill a bunch of people. And I mean, yeah. frankly, the, the advantage that, that Europe got over the rest of the world was, was uh, one of... Deciding like, not to of, care if people died. Yeah, lack of empathy, almost, within the structures of that society. It was just, we were fine with crushing people. This isn't too you know, to, to idealize too much the state of things in any other part of the world, there is always oppression going on as any good Marxist would also say, like what Rodney and he admits, gets into. And, and, and Rodney himself admits that, that there were all sorts of different uh, uh, types of oppression in uh, African mm-hmm. societies. Yeah. Cause, cause uh, he's not, he's not like a, um, you, you know, he, he, he is pushing back both on colonialist or, you know, as he likes to say, the bourgeois academics, he's pushing back, pushing back against them, but he's also pushing back, but subtle, like less heavily against, um, like, like more African nationalist histories as well. He's not a nationalist and he's not interested in nationalist histories. And, you know, there, there was a time, you know, a kind of a tendency at this time to write these histories that are like, well, you know, there was this you know, perfect idealized Africa before Europeans arrived. And he's like, well, let's not, let's not kid ourselves, but also let's not also act like the arrival of, of, you know, Europeans didn't completely destroy what did exist and what good things were there. But he, he also, uh, there, there's a, a few sections where he like, you know, really hits on, uh, the way that Europe specifically prevented the rise of nationalisms. Um, it's kind of, I think it's in either yeah. chapter four the end. or five, but what, the, but the way that, that Europeans, once they got in here, were like very, very set on, we're keeping things quote unquote tribal. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That was, that was one of the most fascinating like, things that like, yeah, it was like the Europeans were desperate to avoid letting, um, their colonial subjects develop national consciousness. Because um, mm-hmm. that would have been truly powerful. Yeah, not not, not to mention like you know what he talks about like you know he, people talking about Africa as like tribal quotes around that. That's the you know the, you know he, he's kind of trying to push back against that. And part but part of what he's also saying is that like well Europe Europe arriving during the development of feudalism in Africa and disrupting that process also disrupted the process of how something like feudalism develops, which is. <clears throat> You know, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, getting attached to the land and then negotiating differences between small clans and tribes and forming an identity that will later on down the dialectic be able to be called nations 
right? And that got disrupted. There was and 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 intentionally heightened all those tribal differences, all those uh, the differences between clans, whatever, got heightened under the colonial system. And so you you didn't have the natural, at least you know, in this framework, natural process of negotiating differences and forming a large social order together. But also at the same time, like, physician, heal thyself. Europeans calling anyone else tribal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, our first, our first entry in the book club was the Basque history of the world, right? Yeah. The Basques. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> These, there's European regionalism is like a thing. <laughs> yeah. And like the Basques is the most leave us alone and get the fuck out people. Yeah. <laughs> That I've ever yeah. heard of. And, and then, and of course, you fast forward all you fast forward all of the the heightening of uh, uh, these tribal differences that you're talking about. Uh, basically, they speed run it. They draw arbitrary borders, which lump people together as though they are monoliths. Mm-hmm. People and, with maybe different economic systems, not even just ethnic differences, complete different yeah. economic systems, just Cu- cultural, ethnic and economic difference, all types of stuff. I mean, imagine, imagine uh, uh, being from Texas and having to uh, share land with Oklahoma. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm, uh, Thank you. We're 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 we're, we're going to turn this into uh, anti Oklahoma j- podcast. We're, no, we're going to turn we're going to turn this uh, we're going to turn this uh, little sub podcast into Jake and Chris make Josiah a sports fan. <laughs> yeah, the, when we when we go into the the fruitless sports corner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I got I do uh, need to get a, a theme song or something for that, but. <laughs> Well, we just do it ourselves like they do on Worst of All Possible Worlds. There we go. It's perfect. Sports Corner. Um, <laughs> which obviously, uh, uh, listen to Worst of All Possible Worlds. Uh, yes. It's a yes. great show. Yes. Um, uh, previous episode was quite good. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, liked it quite a lot. Uh, good job, Brian. Hell yeah. You are truly the worst yeah, of all possible yeah, ones. That, uh, the half of the episode that I listened to was very good. Uh, <laughs> I, need to, I still need to finish it. I apologize. Um, I'm a bad, fruitless listener. Nuts. <laughs> But anyway, uh, this let's, let's talk about, about uh, <laughs> let's talk about development. What like let's let's yeah. move to that like move into like kind of where mm-hmm. he starts. So he starts off by defining development and underdevelopment. Um which I'd say like this seems to be all of us who have like the beef with the Leninism. This is really the only chunk that I think we we would have had some of the beef with. But Although it, he it, does uh, start it off hard with a nice little epigram from Che at the uh start yeah. Of <laughs> Hell the, yeah. yeah chapter that rules. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, this chunk does have a, a few you know, poorly aged stuff, but I, I don't think is that crazy to imagine a open communist in 1970s writing this. Um, a lot of stuff hadn't come out yet, but there is a uh, there's a lot of poorly aged like, yeah, the USSR, which is developing really fast and has no problems whatsoever with that. <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there definitely is a a an affection for uh, uh, socialist, uh, quote unquote, socialist states. Mm-hmm. Um, it exists like, you know, quote unquote, actually existing socialism uh, uh, at the time that Rodney is writing, which look, I don't care what anybody says. That's totally fair. That's totally fair. Yeah. Josiah and I were talking like, about that right before you hopped on. Actually, it's just like, yeah, I mean, it, if you're a communist, like these are the only examples you've got against this sea of, 
Yeah. Bags and of like dicks. bags of dicks. And then like, you know, I don't know, like if, if I was going to disregard a history for praising, um, you know, some regimes that did some bad stuff, there's like a lot of just Western history that I have read that I would have to disregard as well. Like yeah, we don't bat a fucking eye. Late, have, you, have, you, have you heard of this book called late Victorian Holocaust? Right. Right. That's what I mean is like, when we talk about like, if somebody was trying to like lecture Rodney and be like, well, you, you, you celebrating the USSR, you know, how many people the USSR killed, it could be easy to go. Okay. How many people is Britain killed? And yet how well, many, fucking... you don't understand. You don't understand. They were killed by the market. The they market killed, did that. Right. Right. So it's like, I don't, I don't. As though they didn't fucking invent it. Yeah. It, they invented the market and then blamed the market for their problems. That's fucked up. At, at least you, at least the USSR was like, yeah, Stalin did it. <laughs> like, Stalin like, didn't invent a guy to be responsible for his problems. <laughs> I don't want Make up a guy to get mad at. It's over. called the market. <laughs> Type of guy. It's the market. It's the market. But yeah, uh, so so he talks about development as in a very like Marxist sense of like stages. You know, it, stages, yes, but also that like it is all the different ways, both in social organization, technology, education, whatever, all the ways that humans capacity to impact and deal with nature can be expanded that's it that's that's development and so that's you know when we talk about the whole big picture history of of the world that goes from the development of fucking fire way back in the you know you know millions of years ago the dis- you know discovery of fire and realizing we can cook meat and now we're not laying around all the time to like fucking you know to to developing markets and complex you know, ways of, of um, organizing a society around wage labor and whatever the, the hellscape we live in now. These are all these are all varying or, degrees of that. Or architecture, you know, uh, transportation, any any number of everything. That's all. You know, having having a house that keeps you uh, dry and warm uh, is an improvement over not having one. Yeah, like and that's so, a good development. Yeah. And and it's important to, to to remember, like we said, he's talking about Marxist development, which goes from communalism to slavery to feudalism to capitalism, and then to uh, uh, Marx obviously thought it was going to be socialism, uh, but now uh, it's like, for, but instead it's capitalism that's on your phone. It turns yeah, out. Yeah, that exactly. was the next stage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I think it's it's it, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Marx. Uh, 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 Marx's understanding of of how close we were to socialism uh, reminds me of two things. One is uh, the apostles just post uh, ascension. Oh yeah, uh, things like, are ch- it's just going to happen. Any day now. And the other is uh, actually uh, Marx's um, uh, inspiration, Hegel, uh, uh, who mm. obviously who believed that uh, uh, you know he had his uh, uh, his own version of the dialectic, and uh, he believed that it was over, that well, they yeah. had reached. That they had reached the the end of history was the, constitutional. Yeah, he, he literally is the OG end of history guy. We've done it. 
in he, whatever he thought that uh, we uh, had reached synthesis. Yeah, in, which was constitutional in monarchy. Reforming <laughs> in in the reforming uh, uh, monarchs of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I'm pretty sure I have that timeline right, right? I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, yeah, that sounds uh, right. Uh, you know, Franz Josef, the whatever, whatever the fuck, uh, was the was the guy. He was him, and there was no way to move past that. So uh, uh, I think that uh, you know Marx and um, and many of the uh, uh, Marxists, even through Rodney's era, were like a, a little bit apocalyptic in a sense. Yeah, because I mean, well, I, with the Soviet Union alive and being a world power at the time, yeah. and China growing to be a world power at the time, it really fucking felt like it might be about oh, to happen. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> also, also, you might be apocalyptic if uh, there was a very real chance of a nuclear war. That's also 100%. true. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, oh, and I'm not saying they were. I'm not saying they were wrong for feeling that way. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I mean, Hegel was wrong, but uh, uh, <laughs> feeling that way. But uh, uh, I'm not saying that the Marxists were wrong for feeling that way. I'm just saying that that this is the mindset that they are living in right. when right. they're yeah. writing about this stuff. Well, and you could probably, although it, it isn't a clear, it isn't as clear as like Hegel or Marx, who what thinker you could point to, but you could probably say something about the present now too, with the with the state of like with environmental catastrophe lingering overhead. There's a sense that whatever it is, it's about to happen. So yeah, I wish yeah. I'm not as optimistic as that. No, but, I'm not. Or pessimistic, but, depending on your take. But depending. But know. so on the flip side, we have development, like we mentioned there, but we also have underdevelopment, which is yes. A, a relative term so mm-hmm. you is not that there is a lack of development there is no such thing as a group of humans that lacks some form of development as as rodney is is adamant to say that just doesn't exist because always people organize and they do shit but there's but it's a comparative thing being underdeveloped is is relative to a different power that is developed and what's under development it's not being developed enough to handle say something new some new economic system but it's also a thing that can happen to you. Those, yes, those okay, things yeah. you've developed can get disrupted. They, mm-hmm. they, the, the process you're making can be stopped or can even be reversed. Like say a bunch of guys start buying all of your labor and sailing it over to the new world. Um, that might disrupt the development of a civilization or something. I don't know. <laughs> like might, that might, would be might crazy not. if that happened. Luckily, luckily, luckily <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, Josiah, you, you hit exactly what I was like about okay, to cool. like hop in. Like, like that underdevelopment is a thing that can be done to you. Um, yeah, and it, it's like it, it shouldn't being underdeveloped should not be seen as um, a judgment upon the people who are living in that state because they might not have been able to resist that happening to them effectively. Yeah, yeah. They also like, might just not have the resources. Like, yeah, it's almost like it's almost like being developed or underdeveloped is it is like a moral judgment. Yeah. It's but it but it shouldn't be. It's like yeah, and it shouldn't it, be. Yeah, it well, and it, it, it can be a, it can be like a shadow that is visited upon you rather than a shadow yeah. that you cast. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not and it's not Rodney saying. Of course, it's not Rodney saying that that's a moral judgment. It's the it's the. The capitalists, essentially, it's, it's yeah. the damn bourgeois scholars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and I did just want to, uh, the, in terms of relative underdevelopment, I, I did want to um, mention this. Uh, I, I believe it was at the, 
at least somewhat close to the time of writing uh, uh, in uh, uh, for for Rodney for uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Um, it, he uh, uh, compares the annual per capita income of several countries, and uh, just a couple of those are the United States at the top. Let's go number one USA uh, at. <laughs> Three thousand five hundred and seventy-eight dollars in nineteen uh, seventies money, early nineteen seventies money uh, per capita, and uh, we've got the Congo taking an L at fifty-two dollars. Jesus Christ! Yeah, yeah, awesome. So, so uh, uh, that's what I wonder why that about. could be. Yeah, um, even, yeah, even in even in seventies numbers, that's not a lot of money. No, no, no. Uh, you know, uh, the idea is is that, you know, and, and people will come in and say, oh, well, you know, it, it, things are cheaper in the Congo. Okay. Why are things cheaper? <laughs> well, because it's not as developed. Well, why is it not as developed? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it feels like it might be worth interrogating, but it isn't because it, it, it it's often not like, you know, this book is almost 50 years old, right? And yet... I still think there is, when talking about the state of the quote-unquote third world, there is still very often an attitude of, oh dear, how did this happen? Look at this state yeah. of things here. Ugh, you know? It's like, uh, it's like uh, uh, you know what this, this reminded me of? when, when uh, Obviously, Rodney deals with these arguments very well, but it did remind me immediately of Matt Iglesias uh, and his classic article on, it's it's uh, good for sweatshop workers to die. Uh, yeah, Bangladesh. It's okay for Bangladesh to have a loosened uh, uh, worker safety uh, oh. provisions. Cool, man. Wait, Josiah, are you familiar with that article? I I have heard of it, but never read it. It's awesome. Yes. Yeah. It's, it is. Uh, it's it's quite a set of sentences to decide to type. It's yeah. some. It's it's very very interesting. Like you were saying, this book is fifty years old, and uh, I believe fifty one years old, and it is it, you're still having to refute the same well worn arguments that just get trotted out for why actually, and of course we'll get to all this. Actually, colonialism colonialism was good, and if it wasn't good, then it wasn't that bad, and if it actually was bad then they deserved it yeah like yeah i'd say that's the perfect three-tier form of how the the argument is made well i I just i feel like i feel like that is a uh defense mechanism from those of us in the west quote-unquote west uh who can just look at what we have obviously done and like if we truly reckoned with what we have obviously done we would feel very bad all the time yeah and, oh, yeah and and so you just have to like act like i didn't do that i didn't break that i didn't it's just totally take a, a coping mechanism yeah i didn't it's just psycho- totally, totally take a, a shit all over ball. this pe- these people's <laughs> kitchen like i didn't do yeah that. no yeah uh the, you know there's a lot more statistics we could rattle off but suffice to say that um african states uh uh col- colonial african states were uh, and still are not doing well relative to the West, if you weren't aware. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. And, and we'll, yeah. So let's get into the history of why that's the case and how exactly that happened. And, you know, I think there's something that the title of this book is really bold. You know what I mean? And I, I, I think I, I've become familiar enough with the book of like hearing about it enough that I have kind of not realized how bold of a title it is until I, I, I had brought it up to somebody and the way they're like, oh, okay, I know, I know the author's thesis, you know, was kind of their response because the book is just straight up. Like, I, I think what's interesting and intentional about it too, is the way he's using underdeveloped because it's a verb that's being done mm-hmm. to someone else, which is mm-hmm. not how the word usually gets used. Yep. And I think that that's, yeah, pretty, pretty conscious, but yeah. Okay. So get, getting into the history here, he walks through kind of the, the history of Africa prior to the arrival of Europeans. Now this is, um, if you're not familiar with African history can get a little confusing. So there is a difference between the arrival of Europeans and then the colonial era. And especially <laughs> if you're an American European because, or American, you know, if it, Especially if you're American, you think of the colonial period usually as being like the 15th century when those mm-hmm. when the Europeans arrived. But as you were, you know, as we'll talk about with this, the way it played out in Africa was the actual like colonization was that scramble for Africa in the 19th century. Prior to that was a different type of relationship. It was colonial in nature, but it isn't like the formation of colonies in, in Africa in quite the same way. It's, it's about extracting through markets early on through trade and, and the slave trade, especially, but yeah. So so just to clarify arrival of Europeans, there's a couple hundred years and then we get to colonization proper. So that's kind of important to kind of. I would just, uh, uh, one like very minor quibble that I have with the idea of the arrival of the Europeans is the mm-hmm. like I mean they they've been Africa is very large as we all know and a mm-hmm. decent chunk of it is literally on the border of the Mediterranean Sea Europeans had been coming to Africa for a very very long time Mark Antony right. famously fucked Cleopatra you know? <laughs> right well and and that and because of that I mean let's <clears throat> let's talk about how the you know underdevelopments of like that right development did not take place uh, 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 evenly throughout Africa. And this is a big thing, you know, God goes through. And so, yeah, there is, there's something to that as well. Well, you know, North Africa is where you start to see feudal stuff forming and mm-hmm. it, you know, in part because of its, its closeness with the, you know, the, the kind of Ar- uh, Arabs coming in and the, the Muslim conquests and then, you know, Europe as well. It's interacting with as part of the Mediterranean broadly, you know, and then as you get further and further South, you get more into the communalist kind of settings or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say I really appreciated about chapter two of this book where it's, you know, talking about Africa's development prior to the 15th century is that this is history. I just like, don't know very well or at all. And so it, it was just really, yeah, it's really yeah. nice to have it laid out. So straightforward. It felt like a textbook for a little bit in like a good yeah. way. Yeah. I, there was, I remember like, uh, him talking about like, like the 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 harnessing of camels and and the way that like like people call them ships of the desert or whatever but like it truly is like they used camels as like ships. tanker ships yeah and th- yeah. that's really crazy that they were able to do that and essentially treat the desert as an ocean to sail but just with feet yeah like, that's so- crazy yeah, so like, you know, the the early kind of stuff he's talking about a development is often the gold trade in the kind of trans, mm-hmm. you know, the the 
uh, Saharan mm-hmm. region. And yeah, that trade network was fucking fascinating to read about. I, I did not know any of that. And the ex- the extent to which like intricate like metal work was 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 endemic in large areas of of the continent. Like they had figured out how to do this stuff. Um, just because, just because we came in and wrecked it later doesn't mean that they hadn't figured it out already. And you can, like, there's all these incredible artifacts that were put together by people with more skill than I have. Yeah. Uh, I, I was also going to say, I do think it's interesting. I, I did have a, a, a little bit of like a, um, wait a second moment. Um, <clears throat> you know, my, my, uh, alarm goes off a little bit whenever I see people t- start to talk about barter. Um, mm, I don't know yeah. if you've ever, uh, uh, uh <laughs> I believe I've, I've mentioned it in, uh, uh, both episodes in which I've been present of this podcast now, uh, uh, David Graeber's a wonderful book called <laughs> debt, the first 5,000 years by David Graeber, which you should That's absolutely read. Um, which is an anthropo- anthropological history of money and debt. Very, very, very fascinating. Um, and one thing that I think is interesting is uh, based on David Graeber's research and, and, and scholarship, uh, you don't actually see, uh, you know, the classic Adam Smithian capitalist history of money is um, that currency, the, or that is that money develops when the double coincidence of wants uh, is, is too much of a strain. Um, you know, you can't always find someone that wants your chickens uh, uh, and has a cow that you want. You mm-hmm. need something to stand in, right? Um, and uh, uh, but you're bartering up until you develop money. Yeah, um, and then eventually you decide one of these commodities is our currency now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which uh, g- that's not generally how money develops. We already have systems for that. That might be how currency comes about uh, uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, but that's not really how we develop money. Credit money has existed since time immemorial, uh, uh, since the, uh, uh, the earliest uh, uh, human communities. Um, mm. At least from from what I remember reading in debt, uh, you know, you see you see credit money being used, but and you only really see, according to Graeber, you only really see barter in societies where a state had previously existed but had then fallen away for whatever reason um that is when those communities resorted to barter right um uh, which i think is just interesting but anyway that's just a little aside uh, when i saw rodney talk about how uh different african communities uh used barter until they uh, uh, started using things like cowrie shells as currency. It kind of ticked off my uh, uh, mm-hmm. Graber senses, and uh, uh, I did have to bring that up. Obviously, I'm not really sure what uh, uh, Rodney's sources are, but uh, I, I, I did want to note that uh, in the anthropological record, it's it's very rare that that uh, um, currency systems develop uh, or that that barter precedes. Currency or proceeds. Uh, currency development. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's more yeah. like barter is a uh, barter arises from desperation and a lack of a guarantor of debt. 
Yeah, Am I yes. understanding that correctly? I, I I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That okay. that would be that would be Graber's position on this, and you know, and okay. you know, I I don't know, I don't know exactly. Um, like you said, I don't know what sources he's using in this, and also like what what Graber's, you know, why why you know you and I are both big fans of Graber, but part of what his shtick was was um, updating a lot of stuff with new information that was coming in, and so like part of that is just like I I just don't know if there was um the the record that we now have anthropologically for pushing away from the barter system at the time that this was written. Um, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and uh, uh, Graeber even says that's like part of the, that's like part of the deal is that, uh, you know, the, the economists, as he says, uh, push this barter theory of money. And that actually it's something more like a, a long, uh, uh, a long disparaged uh, theory of money called the Chartist theory, uh, which we won't mm-hmm. get into because that's beyond the scope yeah. of this episode. Yeah, but, at some uh, point we'll we'll do debt, but um, yeah, but read that by David Graeber. But go- going back to this here, so you know, uh, go- moving away from like so so feudalism, according to to Rodney, kind of did develop in North Africa, especially in Egypt. And then in Ethiopia. So these are often places with Abrahamic religions of some sort um, that allow for a certain kind of structuring of the state around the religious system um, that allows kind of borderline European or Middle Eastern style feudalism to take hold. Um, as you get farther away from those areas with with Islam or Christianity or Judaism, you know, you, you start to get more toward... You know, the communalist, you know, in the Marxist terminology, you know, uh, organizations that are at the time working through kind of battles between um, cultivators and um, uh, pastoralists, according to Rodney. Right. So so the process that was kind of going on uh, at this time was was kind of a battle between which was going to end up being the the you know a land landed elite that would become feudalism you know there were these battles between two interest groups there was dialectics were happening in the south part yes of yeah the contradictions were being heightened they were uh, they were the and and uh w- w- would you say that that these communities did not have the correct uh superstructure that uh, out of which could arise the mm-hmm. the necessary <laughs> conditions for uh feudalism uh, that's right uh, as we said uh uh that um, Rodney is the most Marxist. He's very Marxist. Uh, I mean, there's basin superstructure, there's dialectics, there's stages. I mean, it's it's actually really, really nice. It's very, very it helps structure the book uh, very well. But anyway, that's uh, that, that's one thing that he discusses is that is that the religious uh, orientation of the society is an important part of the. Um, the superstructure or the collection of ideologies arising out of the material conditions of a mm-hmm. society, uh, which would be considered the base. Uh, if yeah. I have my Marxist theory correct, I apologize if I'm mm-hmm. bringing that up. But uh, uh, that that the superstructures, the ideological superstructures of Ethiopia and Egypt, allowed them to uh, uh, develop feudalism or, or feudal like societies in a way that other uh, societies in Africa uh, mm-hmm. did not, uh, were not able. Right. Perhaps but a you lot could of call them... it feudal ishum. Feudal ishum. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, you see like these kind of like variations of like 
half communalism, half feudalism in, in being formed in these like lower part, you know, the like Southern part of Africa. And then like, um, so, so like your main structure, economic structures that are taking place is okay. In the North, we've got feudalism. We've got the big Sahara uh, sea that's being traversed by the, the camel boats. And then that's, you know, the transport of gold is happening throughout that. So Sudan's economy or, you know, the, what is it? The, um, the, the Western Sudan. So the empire of Ghana, Mali, Songhai, you know, these are springing up. Kingdoms are springing up through predominantly the gold trade, iron. These are the kind of things that are, that are being able to kind of grow development there. And then of course we see an early introduction of what would end up becoming a major problem, which is the slave trade. Um, in the Western Sudan, we're, we're seeing a small slave export it is not a major aspect of the economy. Well, it's, it's a large chunk of the, the economy, but it's not like, it's not as influential as gold and iron from what I'm gathering. Right. Um, but it's, it's a thing. Yeah. There, there, there is uh raiding and, and capturing people and then selling them. Yeah. But I mean, that's like no reason. different than what the Romans did. Right. Right. This is, you know, you this, know? this shit is taking place every, every, everywhere in the world in yeah. some way or another. Right. Um, but you know, this is kind of a Shekhov's gun, right? Like yep. introducing this early on, this is going to be, you know, important. Um, the, you don't get this right now, but your kids are going to hate it. Yeah. Your kids are going to hate it. Um, uh, I'm so yeah. sorry. That was not, that was not appropriate. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, so, so yeah, there, so yeah, we have, we have that. And then like down in, you know, the kind of region that would get, you know, become Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, you know, regions of like Mozambique, Rhodesia, that kind of area. Um, we're seeing the, the rise of like pastoralism kind of winning over and kind of developing the feudalism, you know, around the pastoralist elites or whatever. Um, and also, yeah, apparently some, some really cool ass palaces were built during that time. But, yeah. Um, or in temples, great Zimbabwe. Yep, great Zimbabwe, uh, which is yeah super interesting and also uh, very funny as he gets into later uh, bourgeois academics having to make up theories of well some white people had to have come down to make these right because these are too cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally like that's literally like the OG version of, of well, obviously aliens <laughs> had to build the pyramids. I mean, genuinely, yes, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the the Mayans couldn't have possibly built all those cool temples. Somebody no, must have gotten no here way. first. Someone must have gotten here first. It must have been. It must have been the the aliens from that one Indiana Jones movie. Oh god, <laughs> the one Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, uh, Crystal Skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I I had I had almost successfully forgotten that movie. So thanks for reminding me. Yeah, Jake. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to everyone listening to this. I'm so sorry to Chris. I'm so sorry to Josiah. I'm so sorry to Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Craig um, did not deserve to to learn about uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm disappointed. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, so as as things you know move into this, um, you know this interaction with Europe, trade is being introduced with at between Africa and Europe, um, and things get pretty fucked up because of that. And there's a lot of different ways it get fucked, gets fucked up. The first thing, of course, is that um, Europeans are really interested in this slave economy thing that's going on here. And they would like a lot of slaves because they discovered this new world thing and they need labor. And, and, and they're killing the people who already live there too fast. Yes. The, the new world, which had just 
um, which had just materialized into existence. Yeah, Blinked yeah, it didn't exist priority. Yeah, there was <laughs> nobody look, there. <laughs> look at all of this land. Could you please move? It was untouched, just like untouched, uh, just like the just just. No, I'm not going to go into. I'm not going to go into Israel Palestine. I made us. We, I made we're not doing it. You you are reminding me of that uh, Eddie Izzard flag bet. Do you have a flag? No, no flag, no country. Those are the rules that I just made up. <laughs> what do you mean? We live here. <laughs> yeah, I mean basically. So from um, a Marxist, uh, yeah, from a Marxist framework anyway, oftentimes when you look at this, you will point to, well, actually, Basque history of the world kind of talks about this too. The development of European capitalism is predominantly developed through trade, like through the, through ocean power, through ship power. <coughs> that's, that's how <coughs> capitalism was born. Um, actually, I'll mention, side note, uh, really interesting uh, Marxist scholar, Mark, Marcus Redeker, if you ever read any of his work, you know, he, he argues that slave ships were the original factories and like how they were structured. It's, it's very interesting. Mm. And like, he, he, he points to like the development of the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, you know, the various like class formations being oh, present on ships during this time huh. and eventually oh. getting harbored into the production in capitalism. Very good slave ship, a human history, amazing book, but also, uh, maybe also was also was just like, struck uh again uh, to go back to the metaphor of but they're like an oil tanker well i mean yeah and yeah ships are are a big part of the development of capitalism and also the development of labor the proletariat as a class we know strike do you know where the the word strike comes from is all the you know all all sailors striking the mass and 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 not Mm -hmm. sailing going on you know so like it, it it's yeah so we're seeing the development of, you know, the, the capitalist class taking place, you know, th- throughout this, the shift to kind of global trade around ships. And then one of the biggest and commodities that start to get transported is of course, uh, enslaved people from Africa. Yeah. And what, what this was, I think one of the things that felt so obvious that this book had said, and I, that I, but I had never considered it. Which was I, I had predominantly thought of the damage that the slave trade had done being to and and I still think this would be the predominant thing you should focus on at times is is of course the people who were enslaved. You know, that that's the predominant harm that's taking place. But something I had never considered is the impact that stealing huge amounts of the labor force and the population was doing to the continent in Africa, like to, to Africa. This was something that Rodney really talks about just how devastating this was to the continent that I, I just had never considered. I, I had just generally yeah. not thought much about it. There, there's all, there's so much labor potential that instead of, instead of being able to <clears throat> innovate and thrive in Africa was now being spent um, wantonly in order to enrich dickbags from Europe. Yeah. I mean, to, to lay the foundations of what would eventually become Europe and the Americas today. And I do think, uh, and, and, and Rodney points this out. Um, but I think a, another scholar that does a, a very good job, uh, Oft maligned, and uh, I know on the Mammonberg Discord, another another related podcast, uh, 
on the Mammonberg Discord, I am the the strongest Ibram Kendi defender. Okay. Um, <laughs> he has a, a wonderful book called Stamped from the Beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't talk about the the, the anti-racist baby book. Um, uh, <laughs> we're going to focus on... Look, we're going to focus on his book stamped from the beginning where he actually talks about the material origins of racism and how essentially which uh, Rodney anti-black... also gets into. Yeah, yeah, and he, and he gets into it but but uh, in stamped from the beginning uh uh Kendi uh traces a a very like concrete line from Henry the Henry the navigator of Portugal uh, going, "Hey, there's all these African slaves uh, uh, that are, you know, easily accessible and uh, are, you know, <clears throat> easy, basically easier for us to get than the Slavs um, mm. uh, and and other and other sources of, of slaves. Um, so we're just going to do that, and uh, it 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 helped enrich Portugal and uh, uh, and <laughs> basically Henry's biographer cannot remember his name uh, was basically like. Okay, well, we got to come up. I'm going to make up a reason that uh, that this was okay. That, that I'm going to make up a reason why we focused on African slaves as opposed to others, and basically just uh, uh, out of whole cloth invented the idea that they were, mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know, inferior. Yeah, uh, and, and also that they were inferior in certain ways, but also like great laborers and blah, blah, blah. And they made, mm-hmm. they were naturally slave-like, et cetera, et cetera. And all your classic racial epithets are basically like a just a post hoc rationalization for a, uh, a market decision. I, this uh, is not to jump too far ahead, but this is also an interesting chunk of the very, toward the end of this book. One of Rodney's things that I thought was really interesting was his definition of fascism versus Mm. capitalism and predominantly defines it as you know a situation in which that racial ideology that is developed in order to justify capitalism ends up becoming more important than actually making a profit like Mm. when the actual functioning of the capitalist system is more invested in maintaining the ideology of racism because you know it as we've kind of talked about uh, this the last episode and this episode there are times in which like it is not even from capitalist logic in the best interests of people to be acting this racistly, like, like in the best interests of the, the white colonizers or whatever. Sometimes it is worse for them, but they're so committed to the racial ideology. Like, you know, for instance, yeah. with the case of late Victorian Holocaust or something, it's like, well, like killing a third of your labor is fucking stupid. That's a stupid thing to do unless you, you know, really hold to the racial ideology that was formed to justify you doing that in the first place. (laughs) Or, or that your short term profit is more important to you than any sort of society building and long-term sustainability. Like I don't really care because I have like, I I have allowed myself to believe that these people aren't uh, equal to me. So I don't, I, I can just view them as a commodity. And if, Mm-hmm. If this commodity goes away or becomes less productive, I'll just switch to a different one. But like, yeah, yeah, and, and that actually leads me to—I, I, I did want to uh, read this. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I do want to, to read this quote because because you set me up perfectly for it. Um, 
in in the vein of I don't care because these people are less than me. Um, <coughs> excuse me. A Brazilian plantation owner uh, was asked why the death rate among his slaves was so exaggerated. Uh, it was pointed out to him that this obviously did him great harm. He quickly replied that, uh, quote, on the contrary, it brought him no injury at all, since when he purchased a slave, it was with the purpose of using him for only a single year, after which very few could survive, but that nevertheless he made them work in such a way that he not only recovered the capital employed in their purchase, but also made a considerable profit. And mm-hmm. besides... What does it matter if the life of a black man is destroyed by one year of unbearable toil? If from this we derive the same advantages which we would have if he worked at a slower pace for a long period of time. This is how many people reason. And I think that, you know, of course you have to make up an ideology to justify that mindset. Of course, yeah. you have to invent something because I'm. And I do. I do just want to note that that's from a, a book called uh, "Children of God's Fire," um, a documentary history of slavery in Brazil, edited by Robert Edgar Conrad. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I mean that's yeah. Uh, so so yeah. So of course there there begins to be this ideology of racism because you have to you have to make up an explanation for that mentality because if you take off the 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 blind the 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 you take off ideology and look at what you're just saying there about a human being yeah. like you, you know of course you have to believe that that human being is subhuman how else do you justify that in your head you know what i mean or or you could be uh uh you could uh be like the enlightened gentleman largely gentleman at the uh, University of Chicago. Chicago. Oh, my my and friends. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> and and reason that actually slavery is bad. Um, it, it's morally bad, but but actually, it's it's worse. Uh, it's worse than that. It's inefficient. <laughs> it's inefficient. It's oh, economically no. inefficient. The worst thing. Um, you. Uh, uh, but it's like, what is... if I told you they didn't care about efficiency? <laughs> Yeah, what if I told you efficiency wasn't the point? Well, uh, uh, and of course, and of course, uh, uh, this is a real. Uh, this is a real paper. Uh, uh, this is a real study uh, conducted by University of Chicago uh, uh, economists, and essentially they try to show that, and they admit that that uh, quantifying the. Uh, uh, the productivity which would have existed if slavery wasn't there is difficult. Uh, yeah. But that uh, basically what they do is they say, uh, well, following emancipation, there was a massive increase in productivity and 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 you know like per capita income. I believe I can't can't remember uh, exactly, but uh, which. To me, you know, not having imagine that. I have to admit, I have to full disclosure. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm not going to pay for that shit. Um, yeah, so I'm not paying for free. A I'm, university. I'm just Chicago not. Paper. I'm just not. Uh, look, I'm not that guy. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna read you Chicago stuff. I know that makes me a biased, uh, a filthy <laughs> socialist. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, Milton Friedman can burn in hell until yep. he uh, yep. until yep. all of his sins are purified, and he 
uh, finally gets to see the face of God with the rest of us. Uh, it'll just take him a lot longer. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, it, it, my response to this you Chicago boys is one. So fucking what? Mm-hmm. Who cares if the market uh, uh, is distorted? The main issue is that it's more than one. Yes. Uh, uh, and number two, yeah, that's like we already we already knew that it wasn't the most sufficient. That paying your that paying your laborers <laughs> results in a, 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 a increased growth for the economy. Because uh, now more we, people have money to spend. Yeah, it's exactly. Wild how that happens? Yeah, well, it's so it's so fucking crazy. And I can uh, imagine, and I could imagine Walter Rodney, were he alive and reading that, I could imagine the snarky thing he would say about that, which is just like, yeah, that's what capitalists figured out in the 19th century. That's why they abolished slavery. You fucking yeah. idiot. Of course. They figured yeah. that out. And eventually... That's actually, <laughs> like, that's actually, that's actually a, 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 very consistent, a very consistent theme across uh, socialists. Uh, scholars, uh, uh, one now uh, uh, somewhat discredited, uh, uh, Mr. Chomsky, mm. uh, uh, described that, um, basically argued that South African apartheid uh, ended, um, of course, in part by the efforts of Black South Africans, uh, along with their allies from none other than uh, Cuba and uh, Olaf Palma, Sweden. Um, among others, what a strange um, combination yeah. of people. Uh, anyway, uh, he he, uh, he actually uh, Olaf Palma, Sweden supported um, a lot of uh, third world revolutionary uh, movements, but um, that's just an aside. Um, uh, Chomsky's argument was that uh, the West had moved beyond South Africa and and, uh, and the U.S. Uh, 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 his point was about the U.S. changing its support for apartheid. You know, for a long time, the U.S. was all about apartheid. Uh, Ronald Reagan was like, "Let's let's go, yeah." Uh, I mean, we'd only cool. we'd only stop doing it like twenty years earlier. So, right. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, the, the, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, even the the ADL was working with. Uh, 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 apartheid South Africans to root out um, uh, white apartheid South Africans, uh, apartheid supporting South Africans to root out um, communists in America. But that's another story for another day. But um, uh, the U.S. support for apartheid shifted when it became when they realized they actually would prefer to have um, a larger skilled labor force. In mm-hmm. South Africa, that they there was a material, to. yeah, there was a material reason for America changing its support for apartheid. Uh, so you know, yeah, it, 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 it's you always see this. See, there, there's, it's, it's very. I mean, obviously, uh, this is, of course, take nothing away from the activists, the revolutionaries that fought to overthrow. No, no, no. Uh, no. Oppressive but, governments, but like what Rodney, I think I, you know, I don't want to 
put words in a mouth, Rodney's mouth. But I, I think what Rodney would say to this is this is why you need to be attuned to the way that capitalism or colonialism is evolving. Because, yeah, you could be stuck fighting a war that might be already over and not see <laughs> the new fucking fucking vile way they've discovered, you know, to continue the thing. So, yeah, slavery went away and got replaced by the scramble with Africa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like which was just a new way of, of oppressing uh, Africans. Or in the United States, it went away and got replaced by Jim Crow. Exactly, right. Like, yeah. that's why... Sharecropping, Jim Crow, etc. Yeah. Yep. Critique should not end with just this one specific form that exists. But yeah, um, you know, so yeah, talking about slavery like we did here, of course, as Rodney will say, is bringing in massive amounts of labor like that to develop the quote-unquote new world. And the U.S., the U.S. does not exist without slavery. I don't think anyone listening to this would find that statement controversial. Um, the, the U.S. is able to develop because of uh, using that free labor until eventually switching to a complete full capitalist mode of production in the Marxist sense. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, because of this, you can say that like what, what Rodney is arguing is that Africa contributed just like Europe would not be as advanced or developed if it weren't for Africans that they were stepping on and pulling from, mm-hmm. you know, like that, Yeah, you know, the, the spoils, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the great achievements of quote unquote Western civilization or whatever don't exist without Africans. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like people always talk about, Oh, Africa is filled with all these natural resources. You know, why is it not, you know, why is it not so developed? It's because, that not to use another Marxist term, but the surplus value of all of that stuff is going somewhere else mm-hmm. yeah, by it's, force. It's very by it's, force. Yeah. And in a very literal sense, you know, the gold that was in the mines in Ethiopia is now fucking, you know, b- b- making Versailles in France or whatever. That's it's like I don't in know a if vault. That's true it's in the Barclays you know vault I mean? or some shit. Yeah. You know? Like, like, I, uh, I, I, Josiah, I see where you've got your cursor in the notes. I think that's a great quote. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then oppression the- follows logically from exploitation so as to guarantee the latter. Oppression of African people on purely racial grounds accompanied, strengthened, and became indistinguishable, indistinguishable from oppression for economic, for economic reasons. reasons. I mean, that's right. like a perfect summation of what we've been saying here. Yeah. yeah. And so then I guess we might as well then dive right into where this goes from here which is officially you know the 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 scramble for africa and the process of of now proper like like colonization in in what you when you think of that word that actually taking place right which of Um, course we would we would argue that that uh colonialism is so much more than you know setting up specific political subdivisions right and, and that's what i mean up until this point yeah. we've been talking yeah. about a form of colonialism and now we're yeah, exactly. doing to the most manifest form of it now we're doing the colonialism that you learn about in ap european history right um this is like going from charmander to charmeleon <laughs> this is the yeah and we're not yet and we're not yet at uh Lenin's final form of capitalism yeah. this is not even capitalism's final form and now we'll, we'll also you know like what rodney points to is during this this period this is also a period in which europe is also intentionally underdeveloping africa so there's an example of like um 
you know, he talks about both e- Ethiopia, the Ethiopian Empire and the Congo Empire in the 19th century, specifically were like requesting trade networks with Europe in order to continue developing and like probably form capitalism. And Europe oh, and, chose or, not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Re- requesting, requesting help building factories in Europe going, no, we'd rather you not know how to do that. Yeah. It's you know, very obvious. Like it's not. Yeah. It's, it, it's all. It, it's it's a lot like late Victorian Holocaust, and where people are like, "This is a conspiracy," and it's like, it's like "No, they said it. <laughs> they literally <laughs> said it." It's like from they, "I think you should leave." Oh my God, he admit it. <laughs> he admit it. There's he a, literally admit it over and over and over and over again. There's a quote from the last chapter that's relevant for this this part here where he, uh, he he says, it's fairly obvious that capitalists do not set out to create other capitalists who would be rivals. On the contrary, the tendency of capitalism in Europe from the very beginning was one of competition, elimination, and monopoly. Therefore, when the imperialist stage was reached, the metropolitan capitalists had no intention of allowing rivals to arise in the dependencies. And so this was in reference to the independence movements, what we'll get to later, but this is also relevant now because this is, you know, right around the 19th century, there, there are prime targets for the development of a, a competitor in the world economy that could could be developed that that are asking to be developed but europe doesn't want rivals and so they step yeah <laughs> yeah and i think i think that's a really important thing I, I you know i was talking about this with y'all before we started recording uh, uh and I, I harp on it a lot but this is a this is a point where i, I like to clarify that you know, because people will say, well, oh, well, capitalism isn't monopoly. Capitalism is when there's free exchange of commodities in the market. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, we're talking about different things. Because capitalism is private ownership of the means of production, of productive property, and the, and, and, uh, the associated uh, properties that come, come with that. Um, capitalism is not markets. <laughs> Markets were there before, and inshallah, yes, white guy saying inshallah, that's classic, but we'll be here after capitalism. Yeah, well, because, uh, yeah, because markets in just the very literal basic sense of it have existed as long as we've had, you know, I, anim, like the ability to transport a commodity from one part of the globe to the other. You know, like that's that's... That's not it, but the nature of the economic specific- markets, economic markets, of course, exist. Uh, uh, proper proper markets, I, I would say, exist only after states form. But like e- even the most rudimentary state, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Some uh, someone to kind of yeah. Right. To, to set rules. Right. To set, to set rules. Like a, kind of like we were saying earlier, a, a guarantor of debt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so it, you know it, it's <laughs> you know that's that's. Right. So, so they're, they're wanting to join in these markets, but you know, the, the nature of, of capitalism is, is the want to like maintain your, your control of a monopoly and to eliminate competitors. And so, yeah. yeah why we, would I want to, why would me, I want as a private property owner, why would I want to only like, why would I want to like lower the, my personal line of, uh, 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 of like where supply meets demand or whatever the fuck 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, why would I want to lower my my marginal utility or whatever the uh, microeconomic bullshit we learned back in in, in college right. was? Um, I'm obviously butchering the terms, but but you know, wh- why would I why would I want to reach market equilibrium mm-hmm. when I could just control it all? Right, right. I mean, typical HOA president behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And this is where it ideologically like, you know, throughout the 19th century, we see the shift of like more and more European countries eventually not having slavery anymore um, through the, you know, of course, the work of of activists and stuff. But also they're developing a different type of of capitalism that does not need to rely on on slavery. And because of that, suddenly Europeans feel they have the moral high ground on this issue about about slavery and so the slave market did did continue in the eastern chunks of, of Africa, predominantly like slave trade with Arabic countries. And so because of that, Europeans were able to justify their expansion into Africa by saying, well, we're here to end the slave trade, <coughs> which, you know, I, 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 there are multiple snarky comments from Rodney throughout this. Um, about oh, it's really interesting. You guys fucking like invent this this demand, and then <laughs> it's it's like in uh, it's like in uh, uh, it's like in Team America: World Police. If you recall this wonderful oh, film, geez. this where, is going to be a cut where the team where Team America shows up in Paris and just completely destroys the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower, uh, little bakeries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then at the end, it's like, you're welcome, people of France. We caught the terrorists. Yeah, and that's what happened. We did it, Patrick. We saved the city. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, just fucking demolishing Africa in order to to save from this this damn slave industry. I wonder how this came about. We completely um, destroyed. We can, we stole all your people. We everybody's uh, looking for the guy who did this. We took all of your labor potential. We uh, wouldn't give you any kind of of help. We wouldn't like let you in on our technological secrets unless, of course, it benefited us. And but now, after seeing all that we've wrought, we're here. We, we've we've come to save the day. Don't worry. And uh, and with with this arrival, of course, comes the the extraction of more and more minerals. The the you know. So we we've we've already drained all your labor, and now we're gonna drain. Or no, we're gonna, and now we're going to show up and enforce labor, but it's not slavery anymore. You know, it's 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 just forced labor. Uh, it's different, and you're gonna yeah. get, we're get te- people. We're in- technically paying you, but you have to work. Yeah, and it's it's of course it's not enough money to survive. Actually, you know, I I, I don't he, remember. He gives a good example of this. He gives yeah. a good example of this, which is that Nigerian coal miners at Enugu made a fraction of what the Scottish and German miners earned. They earned one shilling per day for underground jobs and nine pence per day for surface work. Europeans earned seven times that amount per hour. Mm-hmm. And part of this was because, you know, because, you know, as we talked about, it was um, Africa, you know, chunks of Africa were, were in that communalist stage. And so this is kind of the same thing we talked about with late Victorian Holocaust. There were these traditional... Uh, organi- you know, mutual aid might be the right word for it. There was traditional mm-hmm. Yeah, David structures. Graeber calls it primitive communism. Primitive communism. Well, yeah, whatever label you want. There was an early form of like, you know, the clan takes care of each other, whatever. And so because of that, the colonists knew, 
they don't actually have to pay a living wage. Like, they can still keep the labor around. People won't die. Well, you know, until they do. People won't die as fast because there's already this, like, safety net built in. There's kind of this traditional welfare state. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of exists there. And so we can pay them a dollar because they're not going to starve to death because someone else will feed them if they start starving. So, and then because we're paying $1, it's not slavery. And so we're here to, to stand up against slavery. <laughs> awesome. What a cool system guys. So free. So yeah. free. The bringing to... democracy to the, <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I love talking about what freedom is with people and I'm like, okay, well, what is freedom if you're starving? <laughs> right. Like, you know, I'm right. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, on, on this, you know, you, the, okay. The, the, the logic is okay. Well, you're kept alive by, you know, your, your, you know, communal mutual aid, but then, but then they force them to work in ways that destroy the soil so now mm-hmm. they can't yeah. even mutually aid themselves right uh and What's then going we on? get what happened like you said we're all trying to find the guy who did this who, yeah who, who denutrienated or whatever the word would be the soil what or, or yeah or or to or to produce cash crops instead of growing you know hey you now have to do like all of this land that you were cultivating for your own food well now you have to plant palms so that we can get palm oil or now you have to plant cotton and we're not even going to let you like weave the cotton and and we're not even actually going to let you like pick like pick the seeds out of the cotton with a cotton gin we're going to pay a middleman to do that and then we're going to ship it to our nice cool textile mills back on the continent in manchester or in, or yeah and we're in manchester or in birmingham and yeah and and liverpool and then you know, so so we're gonna we're gonna like continually value add quote unquote to this, and not you're not gonna see a cent of that. Yeah, but no, also but also all of that land that you were just uh, that you were growing food on, we need you to plant cotton on that now. We need you to plant palms, like. Oh, but okay, don't worry. In return, good. you're getting schools and railroads, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, those railroads are definitely. For you, and not just to yeah. take the cotton from point A to point B. And that education's definitely for you. That's why we're in our in the French colonies teaching you that. Well, you're the descendant of the Gauls who had blue eyes and white skin. <laughs> yes, and Napoleon was your best general. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure this is really relevant to your everyday Algerian. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, um, this is, you know, this is, he he spends a good chunk on, yeah, both of those things. And yeah, like railroads, again, like, you know, it's kind of what we talked about last time. It's like, yeah, railroads are cool and all, but they're being built just to, just to pull shit out rather than to, you know, transport things from here to there. It's kind of like, hey, what is the use case for this railroad? Is this railroad to make it so that people can move around more, more easily? Or is it so, so that we can move the things that people make around more easily? It's always that. It's always it's, that. so it's, fascinating. It's, 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 it's pretty important uh, which which one of those railroads you're getting. You right. Know, like, right. Right now in the United States, we have great freight railroads. And that's why our 
tran- our rail transit system is so fucking bad. And it's just like this book does an amazing job showing how many just little every aspect of the like the 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 trade or or supply chains or whatever that are getting formed. Every aspect of it seems designed to fuck over Africans more. And more so like even down to I I think we kind of hinted at this, but like, you know, yeah, they're not building factories in Africa because they're 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 extracting from Africa. So like, you know, I I think it's, it's later on they talk about like, you know, oftentimes how it's getting set up is mines are in Africa so they can use African for Africans for manual labor, but not for anything that will require technical specs, you know, education. You know, yeah, you're, not that really would, labor. you're not creating skilled labor because cause, cause, because if you teach them too much, remember, if, uh, and, and there's a quote in, in there somewhere, I don't have the page, but basically they say, if you teach them too much, they'll rebel. Exactly. Yeah, and people, so that's why people tend to get ideas. So they're not yeah, even yeah. they're not even putting factories in there because even because because factories might have a residual positive impact. And so because of that, they're like, well, what can we do that minimizes that as much as possible? Well, we'll pull the iron from here, but we'll make the steel in Europe because we don't want anyone knowing how to make steel or insert yeah, various I, things. You, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I, I can't I can't remember uh, exactly which colonial power it was. I think it might have been uh, Germany um, did eventually in a couple of its places like teach people how to like repair mining equipment because it was just cheaper to have africans know how to do that than it was to like pay europeans to be down there and do it but that's like it you know not to mention something we we glossed over during the the pre like colonial period and more the 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 trade colonization period was that the only trade that was going into africa was hand-me-downs because they found a way mm-hmm. to make money off of, well, okay, shit that people don't want in Europe. We can shove it down in Africa and, and they'll buy it. And so, like, Boy, I sure hope that doesn't They literally were like, they literally like, here, you can have our, our Super Bowl shirts. Yeah. And so, like, <laughs> <laughs> not just our Super Bowl shirts, our Super Bowl loser shirts. Loser shirts, yeah. Right. But because of you this. You can have like, the loser shirts, everyone. There, there's a sense that this erodes, like, over long term erodes too. If, like, for instance, you can't buy. You couldn't buy sheets that are brand new in in yeah. Africa. You can only buy which ones is, that have holes in it that were previously previously used by a white couple up north. Which is it, fucking disgusting. It's truly like so it, gross. And you know, and that's where like I mean, and and that that builds up to what's going on late going on today. I mean, even now you talk about like the quality of of consumer goods are not as good in most regions of the world as it is here, like here and in Europe. And it's, it's that, it is that system maintaining itself, y- you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And w- although yeah. weirdly now we have, uh, we have exported the manufacture of the quality consumer goods that we, uh, uh, use to these places and we won't let them have the good stuff that they make. Well, right. Like, because, because like we our- have, we developed a new, you know, whatever you want to call it, stage or whatever, right? The birth of the information economy or whatever. And so now we're going to do that, but we're not going to let that happen too much over there because then that's going to allow more people to get trained and educated. And when they're that way, they start being rowdy. <laughs> oh, man. This book's making me like a fucking Leninist. <laughs> 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 well, it's literally like it's, 
Um, I, um, I did, I can, again, I'm just like looking at Josiah's notes and he's got the, the big, the bit about Unilever, which I think is just such a fascinating thing. Do um, we want to just go to Unilever as like a good example here? Cause it is a really good case study. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just like, it fits very well with everything that we're doing here. They're, they're intimately connected with the colonial powers. Um, they end up a corporation functioning almost exactly as a, an, its own colonial power. They have police powers and things like that. They are able to buy massive tracts of land for very little money, and then they just turn it into um, palm forests so that they can make soap for, uh, for people. And then they, um, I thought this was really interesting. The reason Unilever turns from being a soap company with a monopoly over essentially soap production in this area into the giant global conglomerate that we know today is because actually monopolies are incentivized to innovate because if you don't innovate, somebody will come up with something better than you and your stuff that you have a monopoly over won't be desirable and people won't buy it. And so they like Mm -hmm. develop margarine and, detergents and like all sorts of stuff they they start buying grocery stores it's like they turn unilever turns into a thing where you've got a 50 percent chance i would think of buying something that unilever either owns or used to own if you go to a supermarket and fill up your cart which is yeah unilever is like one of those companies that if you're unfamiliar basically owns the world like it owns like most brand like so many brands you can think of and it's, it's a, yeah, because of that, I mean, honestly, it, it, one of the best chunks of this book, if, if somebody isn't able to read the whole book and they're just going to read a few chunks, one chunk, that Unilever chunk, because it is the best, like, here is how the logic of capitalism plays out at every step. And it it's, it's just so logical in how this, this company grows. Like it's, it makes sense. The next move. Okay. We got, we, we can make soap. Okay. We can make the soap. Well, let's go ahead and buy our own palm kernel crushing mill so that we don't have to be buying it from then. Okay. And then we're going to buy our own place to get palm in the Congo. Okay. Now we have that. And then you, you know, like it, it all just logically step by step and suddenly you have a fucking empire. Mm-hmm. But remember, we're encouraging competition. That's what capitalism is doing. That's what it's all about. Encouraging competition. It's definitely not using um, military force to oppose um, attempts at African self-government. Um, it's definitely not uh, enforcing uh, labor uh, um, uh, uh low wage labor uh, low wage labor with um colonial armed forces um it's definitely not doing anything of that actually what it is is it's just entrepreneurs just in the marketplace just doing making making moves yeah and making moves but uh uh um you know uh and all uh, of this stuff oh go ahead jake Please continue. Oh no, no, you go ahead, you go ahead. Well, I, all of this, all of this does also like uh, because again, they're they're getting all of this stuff through colonialism for like not. I mean, they would call it market value, and I suppose it was because they set the market. Dirty. But like, Dirty. but like, 
But like they weren't paying what it's actually worth, which meant that they were able to then make a ton of money on profits and then spend that money on all sorts of other scientific things, you know. Well, and, and, and also and, their taxes, their taxes are going to fund welfare states in their home countries. Mm-hmm. They are mm-hmm. getting doctors, and 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 of course the white settlers in Africa, in African colonies, are getting doctors. Right. Um, yeah. The, the the not the native uh, Africans. And Rodney and Rodney, of course, uh, points out that that the native Africans are, are not uh, don't have access, ba- barely have access to, and are not being trained as doctors. Um, yeah, they're and, and they're the getting Europeans are keeping that profession for themselves. And yeah, and, and, of and course, the, doctors, the Chicago the, boys would say, okay, well then it's not real capitalism, but that's another fight to have. Yeah, um, but well, know, it's it, like okay, well then what is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah what what is capitalism? You know, it's yeah. Show like, me actually existing capitalism. That's it's kind of funny because a lot of a lot of like you Chicago like like libertarian thinkers, big big classical liberals or whatever, are often very like. I, they they do the thing that they make fun of communists for doing. You know, you know the the classic communist thing of like, oh, the USSR, China. Well, that's not real communism, and that gets made fun of all the time. And sure, there's something to make fun of to that to an extent, but also like, let's be real. They do this about this about capitalism all the time. Yeah. Real capitalism has never been tried. Yeah, real capitalism has never been tried. Supposedly, um, there's just been a whole lot of I don't know. Colonial and fascist states that got crony, formed. Crony capitalism. Yeah, that was crony capitalism. All the words I used to say when I was a libertarian. And have to reiterate that Friedrich Hayek was a was a universal healthcare guy. That's true. Uh, just want to just want to point that out for the libertarians in the room. Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, wonder where we're going to get all that money for universal healthcare under Hayek's system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's probably going to be from Africans. Yeah, I, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder how Africans. he thought. I wonder how he thought we were going to pay for that. Yeah, hmm. and it's true. You know, you know, as someone who would like to see a more robust, and I'm sure all of us would would like to see a more robust welfare state enacted in America. Mm-hmm. There, there was a material cost in building those welfare states, and 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 although you know. A lot of it was down to the hard-fought victories of uh, labor movements in Western and Northern European countries. The money for it, a lot of that money came from came from exploiting Africa and other uh, uh, underdeveloped parts of the world. And um, it's, it has to be admitted. And it's easier for um, it's easier for the you know the ruling class to assent to a more robust social net for the few people in the metropole um, as long as that can be used to prevent them from gaining consciousness of the people whose um, exploitation is uh, allowing that uh, that safety net Mm -hmm. oh yeah you gotta if you you gotta keep the you gotta keep the poor white man uh, uh, just a little bit just a little bit above and higher in station than the poor black man. Well, and mm-hmm. also a little bit ignorant of the condition of. That's very true people. as well. That's like they need well. to, they need to be, they need to have like plausible deniability of that's not my fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. And I mean, right. And then that's where like, 
you know, this book was kind of um, preempting something that would come later. I, I associate, especially with the nineties of that kind of like charitable organization view of Africa of like, mm-hmm. Oh dear, it's just so poor and chaotic over there. It's so sad. We're going to set up, we're going to build a well. And, and mm. that's, that's and it. The and wells, that's the wells, dude. Yeah. And it, you know, like, <laughs> shop, sorry, there's a coffee shop across the street from my alma mater where yeah. their whole thing is like a portion building. of proceeds goes to building wells in yes. Africa. And, and, and it's just like, and I don't doubt someone living in an area that good. needed a well is going like, sure. That's, that's fine. But like, it's good. Like it's good work, but it's like, but the, you know, zooming out, there's a here, reason that you are doing that. And that, and that the African government, the, the government of the particular African state that you're isn't, in isn't doing that. Right. And it, you know, it, point being, this is, this is the modern day ideology that makes that, that maintains kind of what we're talking about. That is the way of kind of not having to think through like, yeah, that are any existing welfare state we could form in the U S would still be built off of the super profits from Africa. How do we, how do we make that make sense? Well, we see it as just a, a accident of nature that Africa is this way, you know? Yeah. And that also justifies civilizations type thing. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, you know, appeals to things like tribalism and stuff as we've talked about, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's interesting that I, I think um, Rodney was gesturing at the Rwandan genocide before it happened. You know, he he talks you know a, a lot about how oh yeah mm-hmm. these these ethnic divides are you know were were fostered throughout the colonial period, and he specifically talks through the the makeup of Rwanda in a chunk of this book yeah. that I I that really stuck out to me because he's pre predating what was going to happen. So anyway. He he spends a he spends a good amount of time on education as well. Yeah, which I I think is interesting because I don't feel like that's a correct me if I'm wrong. That's not traditionally a Marxist focus usually when talking about this kind of stuff. Um, am I wrong there? You guys both have like a now you're trying to think of whether I'm wrong or not. Facebook. Discussion. I don't I don't know if I would say that because isn't the whole well, maybe I'm getting maybe I'm getting too Leninist, but mm-hmm. like. A, a large part of it is raising class consciousness, which that's true is like kind of done through education. I, I don't think it probably wouldn't be that, that the classic like Karl Marx is like, let's do universal. I mean, maybe he did believe this, but like, uh, uh, and, and I just am not well, not knowledgeable enough on it, but uh, <laughs> you know, maybe Karl Marx wasn't going, we need a universal public school for all workers. But he was going like, <clears throat> these people need to know about like history and like what their plight is. So I don't. I think I would agree with that. I th- I think it's I think it's pretty notable that uh, something that uh, uh, like they did in the USSR was like massively moved to sure. uh, get the uh, get the population literate. Some of that is okay. so that they can read the propaganda that you're producing, but some of it is also like they are they are trying to, and like I mean, it's the same. Like Cuba did that as well, you know. Um, sure, uh, better literacy you know. rates than us. Yep, that's true. Okay, also, so 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 uh, maybe oh, so. Not, and, and, and uh, sorry, I'm not. I don't want to go on my. I don't want to go on my my rant, but but uh, it's not as if we're not reading propaganda as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> 
Yeah, not to. Uh, yeah, that's that's not unique. Propaganda is not u- unique to the USSR. We're not bringing up Israel Palestine, but I'm just going to gesture that direction, yeah, yeah, and you can yeah, see what yeah. I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm we're, we're so glad to, I'm not really on the internet anymore. <laughs> we're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. We're talking about. It. In, but no, so he does focus on education, and I think it's important for a couple reasons. Um, one is because, like education seems to be increasingly associated with people fighting for independence movements because this book is getting written right around. I I wouldn't say like the decolonial like independence movements aren't done by the seventies, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're wrapping up here. Like we, we've started to see really this, this taking place in Africa over the last few decades when this came out. And a lot of it comes back to, like the initial radicalizing thing, the building of that consciousness, right, was around. I, I'm sorry, you for, mean the, you mean the period? You mean the period in which um, the Queen of England uh, graciously allowed, right, allowed uh, all of these colonies, colonies free, to, uh, right? But <laughs> right, but the the the. Sorry, the, uh, <laughs> sorry I'm just remembering <laughs> a meme from the 2012 Olympics when the Queen was. Uh, you know, sitting in the stadium in London and looking out at everything and somebody just, yes. uh, do you remember that Gauthier song? Um, and so they like did the face paint over it and now you're just a country that I used to own. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah, yikes. But so education was like, you know, having very unfair education that was like I like I joked about, like French colonies having this classroom of, of African children and telling them that they were descendants of the Gauls is like, you know, th- there was this clear, this was a, a very obvious irritation that a lot of people who were experiencing it and rati- and like rallying around it. It was a consciousness building thing. A lot of these independence movements started with first the fight for giving us an actual education that's relevant to us here right now. And, you know, education is really tied to one of the, one of the kind of favorite subjects between Chris and I, whenever we're on here, it feels like it's nationalism. And education is a big part of how you develop a national myth. Um, he doesn't get into us too much, but I recall this is a huge part of Algeria after Algeria's independence was also figuring out like not, you know, education, what language do we need to uh, all speak? Cause you know, yeah. Uh, Arabic is a big language. And then I, I believe there was an so indigenous language. And then so is French. Yeah. Do we want to teach French, but we just did a decolonial war. So it feels kind of fucked up to be teaching French when our whole thing is being against this French colonization. Like, you know, th- these are hard questions, but they're all, they're happening a lot in the educational sphere as they're trying to form, like, what is a na- our national identity? Because that mm-hmm. is how the national identity gets passed to you is through the education yeah. system generally. And it's also how you break. Um, it's also how you break other identities. I mean, it's, it's part of why um, it's part of why conservatives in the United States are always so um, freaked out at any sort of intrusion of a language other than English in the public sphere. They're like, no, speak English. And it's because by doing that, you erode the other identity to a certain extent. Right. And, and that's why, and, and that's why these independence movements often started with, with this, because what had eroded their identity as Africans was predominantly this education system that was built around, um, you know, uh, teaching 
you know, white bourgeois education, right? And, well, and 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 for the and for the vast majority of people, teaching them like just enough, like not even mm-hmm. letting most people have like a quote unquote proper education, but being like, you made it to third grade, that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. There were, and this was a this is a really interesting chunk of this was talking about the education bottleneck, and this was part of what built up the kind of resentment that leads to an independence movement is all these people get in the education system and they get to sixth grade and they're right. All right. Ready for seventh grade now. And then there's like no, no one teaching seventh grade. There's like three classrooms and they're all full. And that bottleneck, I mean, that's, you get a bunch of, you start setting up the situation of educated people pissed off with no prospects for work anymore, which is a consistent, that always causes problems. <laughs> like, like this is a this is arguably the situation the U.S. is in in a, in a very different way as in nowadays. Even a lot of people with college education, but no job to really apply that college education. And I think to at least two of us, uh, this is a description of us. And you know, and imagine like, yeah, a colonial setting is like it's it's getting in this situation about eighth grade, like. Like the people are getting an eighth grade education, not having the ability to step up to the next year and then just being given this education and then not being able to use it or get a job with it or anything like. Yeah. So that's how you b- built the kind of resentment that you can build an independence movement around. So the independent school movement was part of that and whatever. And over the last you know couple decades leading up to when this book came out, we saw numerous complicated independence movements that played out in their own unique ways that are unique to them. That would be a whole individual episode for each way it played out in diff- like we could do a whole episode on the Algerian revolution. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. these are real complicated and how they played out. But you know what, what we see is eventually the, the, in, the formation of independent States in Africa is finally happening. And, yeah. you know, this is kind of the conditions that, that, Rodney leaves the book in talking about what, what he calls flag independence. Cause he doesn't want to even call it independence yet. Cause he believes that a lot of these colonial structures are still very alive within these countries. And, you know, because Spoiler he said alert. That, yeah, got him killed yeah. saying that. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, this was one step, but we're not there yet. Nationalism yeah. is one step, but we got to go farther. You know, I mean, socialism. speaking of speaking of flag independence, he mentions over and over and over again that Liberia was technically flag independent, but it was just was, a colony. It yeah. was just a colony of the United States for a long time. Uh, still That's, probably could be called that. Yeah, very much could. Uh, and it, yeah, is also the, the place where uh, all the rubber for Firestone tires comes from. So there you go. Uh, That's why... Uh, 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 Dayton, Indiana, or Ohio. <laughs> I was gonna say, oh yeah, he has this quote uh, where he says um, on on this topic where, where he actually says like uh, uh, I, I think it's I think it's interesting um, where he says that you know Europe caused uh, uh, in, in terms of in terms of decolonial uh, decolonialization Europe caused the underdevelopment in Africa. But it's on every African to um, do whatever they can to reverse that process. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's interesting is, is 
you see that start to happen through these independence movements. But um, I think it's, uh, it's of course, unfortunate that, that he was assassinated. But even more unfortunate is that three years after his assassination, um, if Rodney had lived, he would have lived to see uh, the, the rise to power of Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a, a Marxist revolution right there in Africa um, mm-hmm. that got rat fucked all to hell. Well, yeah, that got absolutely rat fucked, but at the time was uh, doing a lot of the things that, that, that Rodney um, that I think Rodney would have, would have praised, you know, refusing money from the IMF mm-hmm. uh, mounting massive literacy campaigns, vaccinating people against meningitis um, raising the uh, the uh, raising the level of gender equality, you know, lots of things that 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 we would normally praise, uh, but of course it's a Marxist doing it, and and more so. Remember that it's a it's a black Marxist, mm-hmm. so uh, he must be some evil dictator, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually gets gets. Um, Cooed himself, but I do think it's it's unfortunate that that Rodney was uh, was not around to see a, a a a very you know powerful attempt at building a new kind of modern African society by and for Africans. I yeah, I really I really wish Rodney had survived to speak about the decades following this book. Because yeah. there's a lot that happens, you know, a lot I don't, I don't even know very well enough of, enough about, but like a lot takes place in Africa. And I, one thing I think would be interesting and it is, might be worth bringing up is like, how do we, how do you think feel Rodney would feel about China's um, engagement with Africa over the last decade? I, you mean like the Belt and Road stuff? Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think that he would view it as just another recapitulation of colonialism yeah. with socialist pants on. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's tough because it, his, I mean, I don't know because when this, I don't, that's so hard to say because the, his affection, his clear affection for socialist states is very much on display and I'm not totally sure he wouldn't have tried. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously just totally making this, I'm pulling this out of my ass, but it just seems like he may have been defended, uh, hesitant to mm-hmm. uh, uh, say, oh, uh, actually, the, what China is doing is the same as what. Uh, the colonial powers were doing. Yeah. Um, I can't, I can't decide. Cause there is a chunk in the beginning. And, and I, I can't find the exact quote, but he, he makes a comment where he's like, we're the USSR or I don't know if he says or China, but he said, we're the USSR to begin extracting from Africa. Then them being socialist is irrelevant. They would still be contributing to the underdevelopment of Africa. Um, he just didn't believe they were doing that. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, I missed that quote. I apologize. I, I, well, again, again, I'm just, talking, I might be, we, we I, might no be remember, I might be remembering it as a little more, you know, it, it might've been a throwaway comment. I, I, you know, this, I, I don't remember it super well, but I recall a statement like that. Were that to be the case, I think he would, he would have a, a negative view of China, but I think, yeah, I mean, you look at the nature of these like Leninist 
thinkers, you know, thinkers of, of his kind of ilk in the decades following this period. And a lot of them fell into this trap of really trying to defend regimes that are just, I mean, let's, let's be real. China is just state capitalism. Very obviously. I, I, I don't feel like I need to caveat that at all. <laughs> they, <laughs> Deng said as much communism for the capitalists, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I, and I think, I, I'm not even sure that I, 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 yeah, I don't think Rodney would have been on board with, with, uh, I mean, Deng for sure. Uh, uh, I think he would have, uh, begun to, have, I think he probably would have tried to be like, okay, no, it's okay. It's okay. But where we are now, he would absolutely not the belt and road. He would, he would not, uh, be a fan. He would not be mm-hmm. a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, and of course, this, uh, like I said, this is just totally out of my ass. It's yeah, this is conjecture. One book, one this book. Conjecture. Uh, from... Who knows what historical contingencies would have happened to make him believe a certain thing or a certain way? Sure. Uh, but I think this is uh, uh, w- w- what I can say is that this guy is brilliant. I mean, he is yeah. just like it's a, a really, it. really big loss to uh, just. Uh, world intellectual pursuits that he got uh blown up yeah like in his 30s right like man how so so much so much this dude had to offer still frankly it's and just a a, a, an absolute titan and uh you know so much so that angela davis is writing the foreword to the book right Uh, Uh, we didn't even mention that yeah angela's angela davis and um you know, I mean, this guy is, uh, uh, you know, regardless of what his beliefs would be now, he absolutely hit the nail on the head that the reason when we ask ourselves, oh, well, things, you know, why are things like that? It's so complicated. You know, all that, all that it's bullshit. Like, it's not really. It's really not. Like, it's a lot of history. That, yeah. Like that's what that, uh, I think. I think that that it's like uh, uh, Keanu said. Um, it's mm. not complicated. It's just voluminous. It's just a lot of history mm-hmm. to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, because you know, I I kind of regret it, but there's just no way we could have done it. We we barely got into the individual stories that he tells throughout this about like much more zoomed in on like. The story of how the the region that is Zimbabwe developed and the, the important figures that sprung up in that time, you know, mm. in, yeah. in um, you know, the various regions. Like we, we didn't get into a lot of that. And I have a well, lot we of We didn't even talk about like Shaka. You know? Yeah. We didn't even talk about like, Shaka, that which is crazy. But, you know, he spends a, a good chunk on that. Like that this is an insufficient. This book is not Notably, is not possible for us to capture in a two hour podcast. You should read no. it. For and the, and I, do, I do want to note that, yeah. that Shaka was was a ruler, and of course, I'm totally blanking on the state which he ruled uh, uh, now, but was considered by Europeans as one of the greatest rulers in history, on par with or greater than mm-hmm. many esteemed European rulers. And maybe this is just you know, Europeans hyping it up and, and doing like an Orientalist uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, romance of 
mm-hmm. of this uh, of this but, ruler. But I mean, they have no reason to lie. Well, you yeah, know, but <laughs> like, yeah, it, it was the it was the Amazulu. Um, yeah, that's yeah, who he led. So and like, down in uh, down in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, starting out with a small being the head of a small clan. And then building a fucking empire like this guy's by like, 40. Didn't he only live like 40 years? Yeah. And it's like, the, yeah, like this, this guy is like the, you know, like, a, like Napoleon or something. He should be considered a great man of history. You know what I mean? Like, oh my um, God. You know what I'm realizing is that, that Walter Rodney named his son Shaka. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, that's sick. So. Um, was there anything else you guys want to f- zoom in on before we wrap up here? Cause we haven't going for a bit. Um, no, it's, I would be just really fascinated to know, I mean, we've, this book's 51 years old. Uh, it would be really fascinating for him to, to read if he had made it to read what he would have to say about the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and all of the ways in which we have just sort of continued to rat fuck that continent. Like, mm-hmm. like, like, what would his thoughts be on neoliberalism, on the IMF, on, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it, and my other thing is, like, who... The increasing is, financialization of capital, right? Yeah, is, exactly. Like, 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 uh, uh, like, quote-unquote, Western capital is now, like, mostly financialized. It's not even in making stuff. It's in, yeah. well, it's in being the owner of the things, and then somebody we else fully makes stuff become, for you. We fully become the bankers that he talks about the the, the aristocracy mm-hmm. of the bankers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know what pisses? And, and, so, go ahead. Oh, and I, I was just going to say, like, I think it's interesting to think about, like, and, and you know, somewhere there is an activist writer who is this generation's Walter Rodney, and mm-hmm. we just I don't know who I don't know who it is. Uh, but I would like to know, uh, you know, uh, get in the comments, tell us. Yeah, uh, if yeah, you if you do, yeah, if you African do know, yeah, some really good, because one thing this book did also show me is just how, well, I knew it going into this, but it showed me just how, how little African history I know. It, it's something that's, which is something I'd like to correct. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like to yeah, know yeah, this history better than I do. Um, but yeah, it, it is incredibly tragic that Walter Rodney was assassinated. I know we've said that a thousand times, but one thing that just dawned on me, cause yeah, we had mentioned he was shot when he was, he, or sorry, excuse me. You know, he was, he was assassinated when he was really young, yeah. like he was in his thirties. Do, do you know how young, um, he would have, he was younger than Noam Chomsky. He could have maintained being a public intellectual. Oh, wow. If he had not been like, we would have heard these thoughts because think of how many, how like, like I, we, we know and have the ability to historically reflect on Noam Chomsky's take on nine 11. I mean, we're still, I mean, mean, we still hear things from Cornell West, whether they're things we want to hear. You could know. say something like that about Chomsky as well, but my point is, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly, same thing. You don't, you, yeah, don't ask him about uh, uh, Bosnia, Bosnia, um, yeah, um, anyway, fucking, but basically anything. Literally, Chomsky's definition of genocide is like fucking uh, the Holocaust and like Armenia and 
and that's about it. That's yeah. it. It's, <laughs> it's Western propaganda. If it's not, <laughs> if, if it any other genocide is Western propaganda. Anyway, I n- yeah. enough enough Duncan on tra- point is Chomsky is still, you know, he's he's around. He's still around. And Walter Rodney could have been uh, still could around. Have, could have been Chomsky. I'm just kidding. Yeah, we uh, could have uh, we could have gotten takes that are incredibly embarrassing. For yeah, we have Rodney. socialist public intellectual at home. Uh, but no, it is it is really <laughs> tragic because I I would have liked to hear what he you know had to say about the IMF and stuff. But mm-hmm. all right, yeah, well, I think it would have been. I, 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 we desperately need. Um, or like the G eight and the G twenty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be his thoughts on Davos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know, climate change would be fascinating to. Mm-hmm. We we desperately yeah. need a, a voice like fighting for the liberation of uh, of developing nations, and obviously there are a lot of voices calling for that, mm-hmm. but. The level of 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 precision and eloquence mm-hmm. and uh, just uh, uh, his rhetorical his rhetorical level is like it, 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 the scholarship is so so next level. Like it's you know yeah, the, you know what the I mean. The scholarship is good, but it's also just like a well written book that it's is so easy to, to read. It's like it's so oh, fun man, to read. Now, yeah, now gotta, that being said, you gotta read all this bullshit by all these professors. That's like, it's like ninety percent passive voice, and you're like just slogging through the material. And Rodney's like, "No, this is what happened." Yeah, and, and, and like here's, so, so much, here's so much writing is nothing but jargon, and like, yeah, writing, like, yeah, there, there really there is an eloquence I think that's been lost in academic writing. Like I remember reading Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Or, and like, I, it was like a war novel. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful mm. history. And like, we don't write like that anymore. It feels like it's I mean, tragic, I mean reading, you know, reading. And, and of course, rip, rip to another real one. David Graeber reading yeah, David Graeber is like that. Yeah. So he's he's one of them. And I, I don't doubt that this, that the modern day Walter Rodney does exist and probably is writing and I just haven't fucking heard of it. And so, for sure, yeah. I you mean, know, if, if somebody can point, you know, does point me to someone, I check them out. I feel like, oh my God, this person's great. You know, I'll do what I can to get others to read. But well, all this said though, um, we have like one last thing we have to do for this podcast, uh, yes. which is, yes. Chris Chris Barker is next up to pick what our in our little rotation what book we're reading. So drum roll, everybody. Uh, Ramp Hollow by Stephen Stoll, The Ordeal of Appalachia. Oh my God! Let's okay, go. this is gonna be real interesting. I believe you yeah. mean Appalachia. Appalachia. <laughs> I'm a we're, Yankee we're, man. I'm never changing the way I, I say that. I don't know that. if that's. I don't know. I don't know if that's an Appalachian accent. I have no clue. I'm from Texas. So we're, we're going to Appalachia. Um, here, wait. What was the name of the book, real quick, so I can Google it? I I don't know it, so I'm excited. Yeah, no, it's uh, Ramp, Ramp Hollow. Hollow. There we go. Is this Ramp like ramps, like the vegetable? I assume so. I have not read this, so this is going to be very fun. Oh, nice. Too. Let's go. Yeah. Well, what's uh? Yeah, give us a pitch. Yeah, yeah. Give us the give us the back give us the back cover. Inside Here we go. Cover. 
Stephen Stoll offers a fresh, provocative account of Appalachia and why it matters. He begins with the earliest European settlers, whose desires for vast forests to hunt in was frustrated by absentee owners, including George Washington and other founders who laid claim to the region. Even as Daniel Boone became famous as a backwoods hunter and guide, the economy he represented was already in peril. Within just a few decades, Appalachian hunters and farmers went from pioneers to pariahs, from heroes to hillbillies in the national imagination, and the area was locked into an enduring association with poverty and backwardness. Stoll chases these developments with empathy and precision, examining crucial episodes such as the Whiskey Rebellion, the founding of West Virginia, the arrival of timber and coal companies that set off the devastating scramble for Appalachia. Ooh, here we go. Let's go. And we've you're gonna tell you're gonna sit here and tell me that George Washington was problematic. (laughs) (laughs) That's well. I know. I know. um, I know. I'm being. I know. I'm being very brave right now. Oh. How dare you uh, uh, impugn the honor of uh, our great uh, and dear supreme leader. Our, oh, our, our great dipshit who got bled to death. Well, that's that's right, With everybody. His... Oh, God. Yeah. That's right, everybody. No, we, are, we, are, we are driving south for to talk about Appalachia. Oh, Chris, guess that because you're living in Appalachia now, aren't you? This was you. You're just getting yep. us to talk about your. Your at the region. very tippy end of yep, at the very just, butt end of it. Hell yeah! Uh, yeah I kind of want to see uh, if there's an index. Not to dox if... you, but uh, Let's see, do they? Uh, they do mention. They do mention uh, Chattaboogie. Let's go. Page one twenty-eight. Well, I'm uh, I'm really the, excited. The... I'm I'm hoping some uh, hoping we get some labor history. It sounds like we will, but that's that's what yeah, I, I'm really. I think that for. I think that'll be really cool. Um, I think it's interesting to uh, uh, that they called it the scramble for Appalachia. I, that was what popped um, in my head immediately as well. Yeah, yeah. There, if there's going to the be overlap, we found it. Yeah, to the scramble for Appalachia. I think it's interesting to see. Uh, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see. If there are any parallels between the uh, the extractive, uh, uh, mm, the extractive, the extractive quality, economies, yeah, uh, and, and how they're and how they're wielded, um, that was one of, of the co- things. That was one of the things that like kind of pinned um, me to wanting to check this one out and pull it off the two read pile. Was having finished this, and I was like, "Now wait a minute." That is interesting. <laughs> I wonder if we can draw a line from Ramp Hollow to Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, there we go. There we go. I, I I've read Hillbilly Elegy, and so I can I can talk about how shitty it is. <laughs> Let's go. Because there's not been um, enough enough podcasters tackling JD Vance as a subject. Um, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing that that we have a little bit more purchase as three white guys talking about. Yeah, there we go. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> a, li- a little. A, a tiny little, little bit. I mean, a I'm not Appalachian, bit. but... Uh, well, you know what? But I, I do have descendants who are Appalachian, so there we go. Let's go. I, 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 yeah, I think I think we're done. <laughs> yeah. With the episode. Yeah. Well, anyway, Walter Rodney, absolute intellectual titan. Yes. Absolute uh, hero. Um, gave his life for, um, uh, uh, you know, the cause of fighting for a liber- a truly liberated Africa and truly liberated world. Um, and um, I, it was a pleasure to read the book. Uh, he absolutely, kn- I mean, pleasure in the sense that uh, it was interesting to learn about an absolute bummer uh, 
to to read about the statistics and things but uh, uh you know uh, i think we i think we all learned a lot mm-hmm. i think so yeah and yep pour one out for a real one all right well we will see you all in uh we say this is a monthly thing but it's it's kind of more like every other month so we'll probably see you in february we'll see wait we forgot we forgot our tradition we have to we have to oh, say who uh, who who's the fuck who do we who we <laughs> saying fuck well, Europeans, fuck. all your generally europe you yeah, I mean, <laughs> had a really good opportunity to say fuck the belgians for this one I mean, you know that yeah, we don't, yeah, you don't we get that one the, often you don't get that he one talks often. he does he talks he does say he does mention leopold ii at least once yeah let's yeah you know what yeah the belgians you don't you don't get many books that get you to say fuck the belgians and we've we've covered the french we've covered the british so why don't we go ahead and and end everybody on the count of three one two three fuck Fuck the the belgians (laughs) (laughs) and we'll see you all in um theoretically in january but probably february (laughs) whenever we get to it have a good one y'all see Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fruitless. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithm. And uh, subscribe, check out other episodes if you haven't. Um, if you want even more content, you can uh, check out the Patreon. It's in the show notes. And speaking of the Patreon, this show would not be possible without our lovely patrons, who include... Gavin Aronson, Stephen Atkinson, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, Moss, Kyle Gannis, Thomas C., James R., Leo Zachary Dickinson, and of course, Chris Barker. We will see you a little bit later this month with uh, Chris Barker returning for a a little Christmas special, uh, and then on to the new year. So, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you then.